Welcome back to the Non-Standard 14er Podcast, the podcast that talks about everything the route description leaves out about hiking and climbing Colorado's 14ers. We have a returning guest to the podcast. We first spoke with Brian Sargent back in 2019. He's now joining the Non-Standard Podcast again. He is the Development and Communications Manager at the Colorado 14ers Initiative. Welcome back to the podcast, Brian. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. I guess, what is, how, can we just, I guess we want to dive in. What is the CRUS? Or what, well, how, what protects uh, property owners right now from liability if I snap my leg off in someone's private yeah. land? Yeah, so that's the Colorado Recreational Use Statute. Um, I think it's been around for almost 30 years at this point. Most states have some version of a, a recreational use statute, which is basically there to encourage private landowners to allow access to their private land for recreational opportunities. So that could be, you can cross through my private land to go fish in this stream or, you know, launch your boat to go kayak down the stream. Or, or in the case of the 14ers, you've got something like Lincoln Democrat Bross or Mount Sherman, where the current trail alignment crosses through some private land as well as public land. And, and this kind of this case that we'll talk about here later is is what kind of spurred the the closure of the 14ers. So and so the, the, the Calibron was closed last year, right? In 2021 it closed. Um and it had closed one other time before I'd have to look back. It was 2009 maybe, 2006, somewhere around there. They've been both times previously temporary closures. Oftentimes there's kind of like a, a term limit where basically the private landowner might need to like kind of shut things down or you know, not allow access for just a brief period of time to kind of be like, yes, I'm still owning and operating these. And it does, you know, you're not like forfeiting your land over for, you know, full-time public access. So there's potential that that was, you know, maybe one of the the earlier cases of trying to to keep it closed and say like, hey, you know, I'm still owning this land, still managing this stuff. In 2021, it was all kind of stemming from this this big case or this big appeal that was uh, ruled in 2019. So, Yeah, I saw that because I was reading your latest uh, report card. I want to I get, get into that later in the conversation about why you know traffic was down 27% or something in 2021. And it sounds like a lot of that problem was the access to the Calibron and parking at Quandry. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, so we had you back here like in what, 2019? Just looking at it this morning, it was, yeah, like November, December of 2019, so. Wow, okay. So that's, yeah, it's been more than three three years, and uh, yeah, I looked up, you were our 14th episode on our podcast, oh, cool. and now I think this will be our 59th or 60th episode. We have a YouTube library with almost 70 videos at this point. They're all educational, alpine botany, weather safety intro to 14 or climbing on like third class routes we get you know maybe a few thousand views on our videos but then you've got somebody who just like goes out and hikes la plata peak or something and has you know fifty thousand views so it's it's always confusing to us as to like why those get so much more traffic than our stuff which is educational are you the one that does most of that because you're the communications director or what what is your yeah, development and communications manager. So uh, I will have assisted a little bit in some of the video stuff, but uh, mostly that's that's our executive director um, planning out a lot of those videos. And then we work with a, a third party company um, that does all the filming and editing for those. Nice. How many how much staff how many staff is that CFI? Yeah, so we have 
four full-time employees that work in the office in Golden, <clears throat> one full-time employee who's remote uh, works up in BV. And then in the season, you know, the field season, which is basically May through the end of September, we expand and we hire all the like paid professional trail crew builders. So this year we've got 30 different crew members that we're hiring and then two to actually three people that we, we kind of call like super seasonals that come on ahead of the field season to help with hiring and setting up everything, project oversight. So they're kind of like managerial staff for the field and they work about nine months out of the year. So it's a pretty small course team, team of like five year round. And then 30 during the summer, which projects, what are the projects on the docket this summer? Yeah, we'll be um, returning to Mount Elbert for the, the third and final year, um, reconstructing the North Ridge on Elbert. So we had previously done a, a four-year project on the East Route or the Southeast Route. And then we moved over to the North Ridge in 20, uh, I guess that would have been 2021. Um, so we're finishing up a, a big trail reconstruction project there which is going to be reconstructing some existing portions, but also building a few new reroute sections as well. Um, there's one below tree line and then a couple up above tree line. So that'll be year three of three on that. We're kicking off a new project on Mount Elbert's Black Cloud route, which is off of Independence Pass. If you were to head past Twin Lakes, like you're going to the La Plata Peak Trailhead, just before you right. get to La Plata, there's a tiny little parking lot right there. I think it's oftentimes called just the South route because it starts from the South. Um, but the Forest Service calls it the Black Cloud route. I'm trying to think back to the the hiking use stuff. It's, I think, under 3,000 hiker uses. Um, people use that route. So definitely lesser used, but a lot of severe resource impacts happening because the, the trail is just super steep up at the top. Um, you actually go over South Elbert, which is... You know, not a, a designated 14er or a ranked 14er, but it is a, a point over 14,000 feet. It's real close to the actual lakes of Twin Lakes, right? You, you don't go all the way through the town of Twin Lakes to get there? Yeah, you go past it. A tiny little lodge, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called like the Mount Elbert Lodge. It's just before you get to that that little hotel. Yeah, so it's called on 14ers.com, it's called Mount Elbert Southeast Ridge. The trailhead is Black Cloud. Yeah, it's a long day up high. I've, I've only done it once. Actually, the only time I've summited Elbert, we started on the south route. We installed the counter, trail counter we have on, on Black Cloud, went over south Elbert, connected to the summit, and then we dropped down the north side, and we put in the trail counter on the north side. And then one of our crews was already uh, over on the north side parking lot, so we hitched a ride with them back around. It was a, a long day, 15 miles or something. Day. Yeah. What is this? What is the standard? If you said the standard on Elbert, is it from the north? It, the north is the most popular route because it's probably the easiest to get to. You know, it's a, a dirt road. You can get there in a two-wheel drive vehicle. I think it's a little bit longer approach, but it's it's definitely a busier route. Um, the southeast or the East Ridge route is uh also that like would be the second most popular. But that one, you know, you, if you want to get all the way to the upper trailhead, you probably need a four-wheel drive vehicle to get up there because it's a kind of narrow, rocky road. And that was a three-year three, three year project? You've been there for three summers? We've been on the North Ridge for three years. Uh, this will be the third summer. And then Black Cloud, we're just starting this year. So that'll be a probably a two-year project. Was it part of the the report card or did you just pick Albert because it's one of the most trafficked 14ers and the highest? 
Uh, it's a it's a well traffic route, but oftentimes the what what guides us is you know the the sustainable trails report card that we did, um, and that route has some pretty severe resource damage. There's not a really well defined trail once you get up above tree lines, so you're kind of just scrambling up this scree slope, which I would probably compare to you know like the old Columbia route, just super wow. steep, super loose. Um, like gullied, gullied out a lot of erosion happening. So for us, it's like a resource, you know, rerouting the trail so that it, uh, we can avoid the the severe damage and kind of close that off and restore it. That reminds me. So when did you finish that, that rough, the switchbacks on Columbia? Cause that, since I talked to you in 2019, I was back in Columbia and did Harvard Columbia, I think 2021 and came, you know, up Harvard cross then down Columbia and was really pleased how nice those switchbacks were. That route would have probably wrapped up in 2020, maybe, because I think we were, we were still talking about it. It was 2020, maybe 2021. I'd have to look back and see. I think it was 2020 that we finished that. And there's still work to do on Columbia. It's just that uppermost stretch. You know, when you leave the summit and you kind of start dropping back into that valley, it's still pretty steep and pretty loose. We were on that mountain for five years, you know, spent a million dollars working on it. So we kind of tied up what we could for now. And if we're going to go back, it'll be in the future after we address, you know, other trails all over the state. We'll, we'll, we'll make it back to Columbia and tie in that last little pitch up to the summit, but it's going to be tough to get up there. It's going you know, to be a, a long hike up to the work site and they're working at, you know, 14,000 feet at that point. So the third big project we have going this year is on Mount Chavanel, which we started in 2022, so we kicked it off last year. It'll be a six-year project, um, estimated at $1.5 million. Uh, it'll be our biggest scale, uh, longest duration, probably most technical project that we've done to date. So it's uh, basically two massive reroutes. So if you, you've you finished the 14 or I thought you said, thought you said it was Trevano. That was a pun. Oh, you said massive. You said a massive reroute. That was, was oh. a joke. So it was a stupid joke. <laughs> yeah, just do with the delay there. Yeah. So there's a, a huge reroute that's happening down below tree line, and then kind of the middle section of that trail we're we're keeping and reconstructing, improving on what's already there. And then there's a, a huge reroute that's happening up above tree line that leads you to the summit, and that all kind of ties back into like this private land ownership stuff. Mount Chavano had been rated on our report card an F when we analyzed the trails in 2011. Uh, it was an F. And then as we've gone back 2019, it had it deteriorated and gotten worse. The reason was we weren't putting any efforts or money into that trail. Um, and mainly because there were private land that, that existed up on the top of that mountain. So basically from the summit of Chavano down to the saddle on the south was a series of like 10 different mining claims. Um, and we probably talked about it the last time I was on, but in 2016, we started looking at like, okay, we need to address this, these resource impacts. We want to build a new trail, but with this private land issues, you know, the forest service isn't going to ever approve a new trail because it, it would have to cross through private land. So we were like, how could we resolve that? Let's buy some of the land. So we raised $50,000 and we bought three mining claims. So we ultimately currently still own the summit of Mount Chavano. Um, which is allowing us to build this new trail, 
through our land and then we'll donate the land back to the forest service after the project's over um finished in 2018 i think it'll be so that's the standard so you go from a blank blank gulch trailhead that standard there and then yep but you get the saddle with the angels on your left there right yeah and you then... kind of come up the angel at that point where you hit where you hit the private land you're you're basically in the face or the chest of the angel there that's okay. kind of where the private land starts and that's where all the severe resource damage is is, is the worst probably is it because of this, like the, the erosion, or or is it is it is it too many people? Uh, an unplanned route, basically. You know, it just went straight up fall line, and it's it's in this section that's kind of you know coming down into the valley. So you think of all the snow melt and the rain that you get just washes right through that area. So the trail went straight up fall line, and it was in an area that was already going to be prone to like water flowing. So just continued water flow over the years and, and foot traffic, you know, that one's Chavano's anywhere from five to 7,000 by our estimates, um, hiker use days each year. So that's the, that's the start. So you said Chavano, Albert, and what's the third, the second one you did doing the summer? Two on Elbert, the two different routes on Elbert. Oh, two on Elbert, both yeah. on Elbert and then one on Chavano. So you're in the Sawatch all summer. Yeah, we'll be in the Sawatch all summer. And then we've got the adopt a peak crew, which is our, our eight person crew and they they work with volunteers across the state. So they'll they'll work on 12 different peaks, uh, probably host anywhere from 40 to 50 volunteer projects, some that are single day, some that are multi-day, and work with 500 or so individual volunteers over the course of the summer. That's cool. So how do you volunteer if you want to get involved in that? Yeah, I mean, if you've got a local business, uh, we love working with companies and employees that want to get out. So that's that's oftentimes you know, an opportunity. We we save a certain percentage of the calendar for like corporate volunteer groups. Um, we work with a lot of youth groups or youth camps, college pro youth programs, that sort of thing. And then if people wanted to volunteer just as an individual, you'd go to our website, which is 14ers.org. Um, there should be links that are pretty obvious for clicking to volunteer. Um, and you can sign up for single day projects on a weekend, you know, Quandary Peak or Grays and Tories Peak, or we do multi-day projects, which are typically five nights, four days. Uh, and those are in the San Juans. We do projects in the Elks and the Sawatch as well. So a little bit further distance and more remote, but um, smaller group sizes that we work with and yeah, get to go to some more unique locations oftentimes. Do you ever cross over with uh, the Colorado Trail Foundation? We don't do as much with the CTF, um, but we do partner with a lot of other stewardship groups, uh, like Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado, Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, WRV, Rocky Mountain Field Institute's based in the Springs. Um, we've collaborated with them a handful of times uh, out in Pitkin County. There's the Roaring Fork the, uh, Outdoor Volunteers, RFOV. Um, so they work and they, they partner with us on some of the, the Elk Mountain 14 or projects. So what do you spend your days mostly? Are you in the office as Brian Sargent or are you out yeah. on the trails looking at counters? And Yeah. So this time of year, um, we're getting ready for our field season. So still working on uh, grant writing and reporting. Um, most of the reporting at this point from 2022 has been done. So that's, you know following up with local governments, foundations, corporations, anybody that gave us money last year, oftentimes want to know what we did with their money. So I'm in, in the winter, I'm writing a lot of reports, multi-page documents with 
photographs and descriptions of where we spent their money, what sort of things we were able to build, how many volunteers we engaged, all those metrics, and then submitting those back to those funders, and then reapplying typically this time of year for for new funding for going into 2023, sometimes multi-year grants going into 2024 or 2025. So yeah, finishing up a a handful of grants um, that have been due in the past few weeks. Yeah, field season will start uh, at the end of May, and that's kind of when I'll get back out into the field. So I'll I'll go anywhere from late May to early July, depending on the snowpack that we have this year in in every um, different mountain range. We'll start installing those infrared trail counters. So uh, we have uh, this year we'll have 23 different trail counters uh, all across the state. So a lot of driving and, and hiking um, in the month of June and early July. That seems like a lot more counters than you had last when I talked to you four year, three years ago. Yeah, we might have. We went from five to 10 and we were at 10 for a few years and then we bumped up to 20 and then we got up to 23. So I don't remember where we would have been in 2019. It would have either been we were still at 10 or maybe had 20 at that point. And so you have, and so you're how many 14ers you covered? Oh gosh. Like there's, we have a trail counter on all three routes on Elbert. So, you know, that knocks off a few, um, it's somewhere around 20 to 25, you know, depending on how you count it. Like we've got one counter that would technically monitor grays and Tories. So there's two peaks, you know, Lincoln, Democrat, Ross, we do have a counter on Democrat. We kind of count that as people that are completing the, the full loop. Yeah. Again, there's a couple of routes like Pikes Peak. We have a two counters on that same mountain. So I think it's similar 23 or 25 routes or 25 peaks. Yeah. I want to dive into this liability issue then. Let's do it. Am I legally going to be able to hike across Bross this summer? <laughs> uh, Bross? No, because Bross was, you know, always going to be uh, a no trespassing. The, the, the four mountains that we've got there, Democrat, Cameron, Lincoln, and Bross, are kind of this a uh, uh, patchwork of public land that's owned and managed by the U.S. Forest Service and private land that's owned by a gentleman named John Ryber. And I think there's a couple other smaller kind of stakeholders that have you know a claim or two here and there. But John Ryber essentially owns the entirety of uh, Mount Democrat, Mount Lincoln, and Mount Bross. Historically, he has kept the access to Mount De- uh, Democrat and Mount Lincoln open for, for the public to use because he's been covered by the Colorado Recreational Use Statute, basically saying, hey, I'm giving you free access to go recreate on these 14ers. If you get injured, you know, you can't sue me. I'm, I'm covered. I'm giving you free access. He's always had Bross as a private peak. You know, you're, you're not supposed to be going there. Um, there's technically a bypass if you're coming from Lincoln or Cameron, there's there's signage that's up there that says, hey, this is your bypass back to Kite Lake. Please don't go to the summit. Do thousands of people every year probably ignore that sign and go to the summit? I'm sure they do. So probably super frustrating for the landowner um, when he's giving people access to the other ones and and having people kind of ignore his no trespassing signs. Um, so he owns all four. Cameron, the summit of Cameron is technically on Forest Service land. But you can't get to Cameron without crossing private land. Essentially, the the Kite Lake trailhead area, which is where you've got the parking lot, the bathrooms, the little lake, 
there's a, a lot of that area there is is public land. It's managed by either the town of Alma or the U.S. Forest Service. So there's probably still going to be access to the parking lot and the campground. You know, there's a few tiny camp spots and like picnic tables right there where people can hang out by the lake. Once you get maybe half a mile, three quarters of a mile onto the trail, like you're heading up Mount Democrat, you cross into private land. Um, and that would be where that technically that closure that's going to be going on this year would start. Is that where it was closed in 2021? So how do they regulate that? You could still drive up to Kite Lake. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had a trail counter up there with we've we've been communicating with John Ryber for years. We've got a, a good relationship with him. We've, you know, advised him on numerous different things. And he allows us to put his our trail counter on his land. It's actually located on private land. So we were monitoring hiking use that year. There were still people that were ignoring the signs and hiking the peaks um, during the closure. So without like, you know, having somebody up there to stop hikers from going, you know, there will most definitely be people up there this summer. They're probably just blatantly ignoring signs or just completely ignorant to the fact that like all these issues are going on. What about, I'm thinking like, like the ski route, the Emma shoots there, you go up there before Kite Lake and hang a left and go up the Emma shoots or like, will this change access to Buckskin, the Centennial uh, there? So the Buck, I was looking at this the other day. You could, you can actually still go to Buckskin because that is on Forest Service land. So again, you could you could park at Kite Lake and not do 14ers and go over to Buckskin, um, and that that stays on uh, public land almost its entirety. I would have to imagine that those shoots. It's we skied those actually in 2019, which was a super fun ski. Um, I would have to imagine that that route up there is also going to be like majority private land, but I'd, I'd have to look at that on, on the maps. Historically, before, even before this stuff is happening, why has Bross always been out? You know, from what I understand, you know, it's a, a generation generational thing. His family has owned the land up there for, for several generations. I think they have a closer tie to Mount Bross. I think there's also, you know, there's, there's like road access on the, what would be like probably the east side of that mountain. I think you, you can actually still get up there with a vehicle. I think there's a lot more of the old mining shafts and things over in those areas. So, you know, he, he definitely doesn't want people wandering around and, you know, falling into a, a mine shaft or something. But I think it has to do with it. You know, he, he has just kind of a closer family tie to that mountain and has always wanted to kind of keep that private. But but is he? I guess how's the liability change? It, it was it's always the same liability. If I fall down, if I'm on, if I'm on Bross five years ago and fell down into mine shaft, could I sue? <laughs> Technically, no, because he has it part. He has it marked as no trespassing, right? So you're 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 ignoring his signs. And then if you're on Mount Democrat or Mount Lincoln, he's covered by the Colorado Recreational Use Statute because he's offering free access to the public to use these these places that are on his land. This all changed and basically he got spooked. The landowners on Mount Lindsay, which in is subsequently closed at the end of 2021, stayed closed all of 2022. And from what our communication with them has basically dropped off. We don't really know if they have any interest in in reopening that at all. They these landowners got spooked by this case that was appealed in 2019, um, which kind of set a new precedent 
of it was the first time I think in the 27 years that the the recreational use statute had existed and been protecting landowners that a landowner actually got sued. This is the Air Force case, right? If someone was running around, yeah, a biking, so a paved trail that runs through the Air Force Academy, and I guess the accident actually happened in 2008. A guy was riding his bike on the paved trail, which crossed you know public land, but then went through the Air Force Academy. A landslide had happened a few weeks prior and it had like washed out the, the paved trail and he fell into the hole and got like seriously injured from, you know, riding his bike into this, basically this big massive hole in the ground. And so I don't know the, you know, what happened between 2008 and 2019, but basically an appeals court then comes back and rules that like, hey, the Air Force Academy was willful and negligent in you know, their duty to warn or guard. Basically, they had somebody had gone out there a few weeks ahead of time and seen this. They had a photographic evidence of the hole. They failed to mark, put a sign out. They failed to wrap caution tape around it, close the trail. There were all these different things that they could have done to like basically warn against this accident that could have happened. So this is, you know, this was the first time that any landowner had ever been sued um, and and basically the, the Colorado Recreation Use Statute didn't cover them in that case. And that's what spawned all of this kind of paranoia and concern about, am I going to get sued if somebody's up on a 14er and breaks their leg or gets struck by lightning? And so that come, brings us to the bill that was introduced in the legislature in 2023 that you testified in favor of, right? Correct. Which was what, just basically added, striked like one word or something, like willfully or it something, was, just to make it more. Yeah, I was making a couple of different amendments to the bill. The main the main thing was striking that willful word in there. Of basically, you know, if you own private land on Lincoln Democrat Bross or Sherman, where you know you have all these old mining structures that people can wander off trail and go fall into, you have inherent risks of climbing mountains, there's avalanches, there's rockfall, there's lightning strikes, like all these things. Are you now willfully allowing people to go onto your land? And you know, you, you know, like, hey, there's these risks. I'm not putting up signs that warn people against, hey, you know, you need to be down early because the lightning is an issue and there's avalanches in the winter. So you probably should take the proper precautions. So these landowners were, were wanting to strike that willful word out of the um, the bill or the legislation. And then we give them more protection under this, the current CRUS, Colorado, Colorado Recreation, say, say it again. Yeah, Colorado Recreational Use Statute. Use Statute. E-R-U-S. But it, only, it didn't even get to one committee at the state capitol. It didn't, yeah. So it, it needed to get out of this first committee hearing, the Judiciary Committee, and then it would have got on to subsequent meetings where it would have been voted on again numerous times you know we had a kind of an idea going into this that it, it was maybe not going to be looked upon favorably by the full committee you know i don't know that i i hope that it's not just bipartisan you know bs but the bill was brought forward by a republican senator um from what the woodland parked area it only had support from the other Republican on the committee and the three Democrats all voted no against it. They sided with the Democratic trial lawyers who opposed the bill um, and basically said, 
the use statute is has protected people for 27 years. It still protects people. This is just this one incident where, you know, they did not do have that. They did not fulfill that, you know, duty to guard or warn people. It was malicious or willful intent by not marking the sign that the trail closed or, or anything like that. So. So what's the to vote against it? What's the argument? It's it's redundant or we should have like the person that should be able to sue against the Air Force if they have willful ignorance of their own property or. I don't understand the argument against it. If, if it would just protect homeowners and is going to keep the 14ers open, why why vote against it? They, the, the Democratic trial lawyers were basically just saying like, hey, this this has worked for 27 years. It still is working. This one case doesn't set a new precedent. You know, I think a lot of the private landowners were scared like, hey, even if um, the CRUS is still ultimately going to protect me, are all of these trial lawyers now going to want to take cases from hikers and come after me? And that even if they knew that they weren't going to lose or have to settle, you know, that just the process of going to court would be devastating for some of these people that own the land. Like, you know, you pay hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars just in the litigation process. So I think a lot of the private landowners were like, we don't want to deal with this. And we're scared that, you know, that means you guys are going to come after us now. And just, you know, just try to get money. Which you can see the logic of why the Caliburon is going to be closed this summer, right? Yeah. And, you know, that gets into John Ryber has his own attorneys. And they have for years been telling him like, hey, the best way to protect yourself is to just close access to these peaks. John Ryber, the landowner, he wants to keep public access to these places. He knows people enjoy going there. He knows that it stimulates the local economy for the town of Alma. Yeah, so he he wanted to protect himself and keep these peaks open. But his attorneys are saying, hey, man, if you want to protect yourself, you need to close them. And then the other issue is like insurance companies. Basically, he said that no insurance companies are even wanting to like take him take him on as a uh, as a client. Like they're not willing to to protect him. So, you know, with our, our hiker use data, we, we tie that into some economic studies that were done in 2009. Basically we, we take this survey that was done uh, on Quandary Peak where these two economists from CU had gone and surveyed people basically saying, how much do you estimate that you spent, you know, on this day trip to get here? So a lot of people like you and I drive up to the mountains, we might fill up a gas tank, get beers and burgers in town. So like, our number is probably relatively low. <clears throat> Someplace like Quandary brings a lot of out-of-state tourists for the, you know, the local kind of ski economy and the 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 town there uh, brings a lot of out-of-state tourists. So you might have people that are coming from Texas or Illinois who got a rental car and got a hotel and had to buy additional things to go hike the peak. So this number that they estimated from that study in 2009 was $271 is an average amount that people spend to hike a a 14 or for one day seems kind of skewed. It seems, seems high again for probably somebody like you or I who would spend maybe 50 bucks or 60 bucks or something. Uh, yeah, but yeah, if you're driving from Kansas and you're got the yep. family for a week or. Yeah. And, and I think it'd be interesting to do that study again and go to maybe a more remote 14 or in the Sawatch or something where it's not as like a touristy hub as Quandary Peak is, or um, you might have a different, you know, person that's, that's, climbing that mountain and maybe coming from more of a local area. 
Yeah, so we're able to take like our hiker use numbers paired with that $271 estimate. And then we we can estimate what statewide economic impact is. So for the closure in 2021, we estimated it was like $5 million for the town of Alma um, or or surrounding areas. Could it be could be fair player of Breckenridge, depending, I guess, on where people came from. Data available publicly? You don't have it, but by month by month, right? Available for any? Um, we don't have it month by month, no. But you could look at like you know, twenty twenties use on Lincoln Democrat Ross was at like thirty thousand, and then for twenty twenty one, it was at like seven thousand. So, yeah. So I know your questions earlier was like, you know, we we did testify in support of the bill. Um, there were I think close to thirty different entities that were in support of this bill. John Ryber and Patrick Shilkin, who are both private landowners uh, adjacent to 14ers. Shilkin owns land over near Mount Sherman. Um, and then John Ryber's obviously got Lincoln Democrat Ross. So they both testified. CFI, uh, Colorado Mountain Club. There were um, county commissioners. There were folks that are in like water access industries, um, climbing access. So a handful of different people from different constituents all across the state had, you know, come out and testified in support of this bill. Um, so I think it's got plenty of backing and there's, there's definitely going to be efforts to continue to kind of push this and try and make some amendments to it. So you expect it to be re- returned to the legislature next, next general mm-hmm. assembly. Uh, at some point. Yeah. I know we, we had budgeted as an organization, some money in our expenses this year to potentially, do kind of an education campaign around it and spend some time working with lobbyists. Um, and it looks like kind of in this little interim period where we've been a little quieter after the bill got uh, voted down, it looks like there's kind of a coalition group that's that's started up online, um, which is numerous different organizations that are that are going to be working with a lobbyist to kind of, re- I think, redraft this thing and go back at it again. So, So if you were... Yes. Listeners very political and like, you know, contacts their state rep or state senator. What would you what, what do they say to their state senator or representative? Yeah, probably tell them that you support any revisions to the Colorado recreational use statutes that are proposed so that we can protect, you know, this this recreational access on private lands. And currently 14ers are kind of the hot topic because these are these, you know, high visibility things that are that are now closed after this. But, you know, you could see access to hunting or fishing or, like I said earlier, you know, crossing into somebody's land to to launch your boat into a river to go paddling. So, like, it's it, it very well could, could span through different um, industries and kind of um, recreational hobbies, not just 14 or specific stuff. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I was always thinking from the 14er angle, but it could be anything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, somebody snowmobiling in, you know, on private land to go get to a peak or backcountry skiing, fishing, hunting. Is there a lot more private lands you cross than you really think when you're including your non-standard routes to 14ers? Like, I'm thinking like even like, like Pine Creek, access, you know, that access to like Harvard, Oxford. I remember crossing some private land for like a mile or two. I'm sure it is. And and more of them have kind of popped up here and there that even we weren't even aware of. Um, so obviously we had on our radar, like Mount Chavano, which we, 
we took it in our hands and purchased some private land. We've always been working with John Ryber, Lincoln Democrat Barras, to try and help him out with with some of his concerns. Um, Mount Lindsay, we the lower portion probably three three fourths, maybe even four fifths of that route is on uh, U.S. Forest Service land. You come in, you know, through the like Lily Lake Trailhead, Werfano Valley, and you gain all that elevation. And then right before you get to the saddle between Lindsay and Iron Nipple, you cross into private land. So then once you hit the saddle and you go to the summit, you are on private land. Um, it's owned by a, a ranch down in, in the southern part of the state. We've been communicating with them for years. Again, we we have permission from them. Our trail counter is way up there. It's almost at the summit. So we have permission for them to monitor hiking use. We've been working with them to try and figure out some legal workaround and actually get like an easement um, put into place because previously people had just been trespassing. Um, there was no signage or anything. But after this 2019 appeals ruling came down, they just kind of stopped discussions with us, posted some signage that said no public access, and it's since been closed. So those were things on our radar. But, um, you know, there was a piece of private land that popped up, I think, last year, maybe two years ago, like on the ridge to Little Bear, that people were asking, like, if if CFI was going to buy, it was some, you know, it it's non-developable. It's literally on the, you know, this technical ascent up to Little Bear. So there are these little tiny patchworks all across the state. Okay. So then what about like the private one, uh, Calebra? Yep. Are they, how does that, how does liability work with them? I mean, you get to sign a big waiver anyway to even get yeah. on their property, right? So they just cover themselves that way? Yeah. So the recreational use statute only is encouraging people who are granting free access to their land. So as free soon as you, important. yeah, free is a very important part of this CRUS uh, legislation. So Calabra is not involved in any of that. They have, they must have their own protections and that would be, yeah, if you're going to climb it, you pay a fee and you sign a liability waiver or, you know, maybe he has insurance or something to cover, cover themselves. But is there a higher standard? Like if, if I charge then. Am I hold to, held to a higher standard? I'm not covered by the CRUS? You wouldn't be covered by the CRUS, no. So I so, would, would be susceptible to a lot more liability because I'm charging you to cross my, if I, I buy the section of Little Bear and I say $5 to cross it and someone gets injured because I'm charging, I have way different liability. Probably, I guess. I mean, you've climbed Calabria. I haven't climbed Calabria. You probably had to sign a liability waiver of sorts, right? That said, yeah. if you get injured, you're not going to sue me. I would imagine that's the workaround, right? It's not like there's an armed guard or there's like they're blocking off trailheads. There's just a sign that says you can't really go to the summit of Lindsay. Yep. And that that's going to legally protect them because if people are trespassing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is something that we brought up in in our testimony was like, hey, we we are also private landowners. We're a small nonprofit organization. We owned land at 14,000 feet. We have signage on our land that says, hey, you're crossing into private land. You know, we're covered by the Colorado Recreational Use Statute. You, we're giving you free access to climb on our land, but know that there are inherent risks with climbing here. So we we went ahead and took the extra precaution of posting signs at 14,000 feet. But one of our concerns is like, okay, hey, what happens if, which it did several years ago, or one of the signs went missing. 
somebody took it down or rockfall knocked it off or an avalanche took it out. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it takes, it's a full day adventure to go get to the summit of Mount Chavano. It's several hours to drive from golden to down there. And it's even longer to hike up to the summit and haul additional signs and tools to, you know, post them into the ground. Like it, if we know that the sign's gone, what's the timeline for us to have to go get back up there and put a new one up? These are all questions that we were kind of trying to pose of like, we're private landowners too. We want people to have access to this. We tried to help mitigate our liability by posting some additional signage. But, you know, if that signage isn't there or it's knocked down, like, you know, how quickly do we need to get back up there? Yeah. And it's, I've been up when I pulled the counter on Lindsay the past two years that we've had it up there. I mean, the signage that they have is, you know, it kind of laughable. It's just a, a stake in the ground with a little thing that's just constantly flapping back and forth in the wind. So there's a good chance that that would blow away pretty, pretty soon. So. Now with the numbers down on Lindsay or did people just do it? They were going to do Lindsay did Lindsay anyway. No, it went down quite a bit. I'd, I'd have to look back and see what it's really? been years but yeah it dropped so in 2021 it was basically there was access to it you know early season all the way through september so they kind of closed access in 2021 when most people weren't going to be going there anymore it was starting to get covered with snow the season field for for most people the field season is ending for 14 or stuff by the end of september so that was kind of the end of the year 2022 i'd have to and i could even pull it up real quick i'd have to go and look and see what the use was on that peak is that report cards not out yet, right? We haven't released it yet. No, we had a couple of counters that got um, kind of stranded. Um, basically, if the snow falls sooner than I can get to some of the more remote locations, we don't go for them. So there's still a couple of uh, counters that are out there. Princeton and Wilson um, are still hanging out there. So um, we'll plan to release that updated report this summer it always generates quite a bit of um, good publicity for us you know we get a lot of interviews and things so it's uh it's always timely to do that in the winter or um in the in the summer months so lindsay's been closed since he said september 21 so it's right. closed off 22 season correct and there certainly would have been people up there yeah i mean there were there were the highest use day in 2022 there was 14 people Again, this isn't 100% accurate. It could have been a mountain goat or it could have been a person that happened to just walk by it. One person that walked by our counter 14 times, but um, you know, we'll never know. But there were, it looks like almost every day there was at least one person up there. How does that compare to 21 when it was still legally opened? All right. So this is the daily hiking use in 2021. You can see here's where that closure hit. So you can, you know, these are our peaks. That means it's a weekend day. Um, Makes sense. You have a 50 people on uh, a peak. Probably a Saturday. I can't get it. Yeah. 50 people exactly at the end of August. And then here our closure hit somewhere at the beginning of September. So that use dropped off. You might've had a straggler here or there. They were still up there. 2022. I mean, you definitely had four people, six people, three people. And again, could be a mountain goat, could be one person that's it is a one. drop. Yeah, you can see a big drop. Oh, yeah, it's a massive drop. Um, I would have to <clears throat> pull it into Excel to actually get the do people know because the 14ers.com public knowledge about that, or uh like I feel like if you drove all the way to Lindsay, which is so hard to get to anyway. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I don't even think there's any signage posted down low. So if you came from out of state, you did zero research online to know that like the peaks were closed, you could have made it <laughs> to 13,500 feet, 13,8, whatever it is, and then hit these signs and been like, dude, are you kidding? Like it's closed. Are you kidding me? I'm just going to go for it. In 2021, it was just shy of a thousand people, uh, 986. And then in 2022, it dropped to 300. So um, by a third. So okay. Yeah. What's the town? Is there not really a town there? Is there? Yeah, it'd be Walsenburg or you could probably access it, I guess, coming down like Westcliff maybe. Um, Interesting. Do, do your counters work in the winter or do they get snow on them and they get covered or what? Yeah, they will get covered by snow. Um, we have a few that stay up in the winter and we move them to different locations. They're all the ones that are in trees, uh, tree mounted ones. But oftentimes like the standard route totally changes in the winter. So yeah. you typically have one on Quandry Peak. And in the winter, there's kind of a bypass where the trail, once you're getting close to tree line, kind of dog legs in the summer, it goes off to the left and stays in the trees. Whereas in the winter, people just kind of go straight up the hill. So they would totally bypass it. So um, we typically move that counter lower down to where it's before people would turn off of the, the standard route. Makes but, sense. you know, it changes, it fluctuates. Like if it's, if it's on a tree branch and you get a bunch of snowfall, then that branch is heavy and so then the counter might be pointing down at the ground and then as it warms back up and melts off so we don't really use any of the winter data that we have just because we don't feel that it's super reliable so then what most of these closures on lindsay Ducalibron drives your big dip in 2021 counter data that was like yeah, significant 27 percent drop yeah and it <laughs> It's hard as we've it's it's been difficult as we're trying to track trends over time. You know, we've had trail counter reports. First one was in 2016. From 2016 to around 2019, we were able to kind of say like there's a pretty much a steady five to seven percent increase year over year on the 14ers. Then 2019 comes in and we have this crazy heavy snow year. So we had huge snowfall that happened in like March or April. Um, there was historic avalanches that closed access to roads and um, wiped out, you know, trailheads and things like that. So the use in 2019 was down basically due to access issues, right? A lot of these places you couldn't get to unless you were willing to hike the extra distance on snow. You couldn't get to them until July or, you know, mid-July maybe. Um, so you're missing a lot of that June data that people just people weren't really out when they typically would have been out. So we came off of a, a low year in 2019 and we went into pandemic year in 2020, which was when the world shut down. People aren't going to bars and movies and malls or sporting events. Everyone's going outside. So we saw like a 40 percent increase in use in 2020. So we've had this like snow year, pandemic year, and then 2021 comes back in. We're already probably predicting a drop in use from 2020 just because it was, you know, an anomaly. And we get hit with Grays and Tories has parking restrictions. So Clear Creek County came in and marked the entire length of Stephen Gulch Road with no parking. Park. Signs, right? Oh, that drastically reduced the use, because if you don't get a parking spot at the, the tiny trailhead parking lot, you have to park in Bakerville and hike the extra 
six to eight miles round trip. Yeah. That deters yeah. a lot of people, but deters most people from doing that that peak, right? So I think we went from thirty thousand down to like twenty thousand on that. So it was a, a significant reduction in use on grazing tories. Quandary Peak then implements their parking shuttle system. So there's a fee now to park in the parking lot. And then if you don't get, you know, if you don't want to pay the fee in 2021, you could park for free in Breckenridge and take a free shuttle up to the trailhead. That was, that happened in kind of the later end of the year. It was August uh, when they first implemented that. So it wasn't a full impact, but we've seen that that shuttle system in 2022 had an even bigger impact on use on Quandary. It's, it's almost come down from 50,000 to like 25,000. So basically that parking systems dropped the, the use about half on that mountain. So that contributed to 2021's reduction in use a little bit, but one of the biggest was the decalibron closure. You know, again, we were in pandemic year, we were at 30,000 and we came down to like 7,000 use days. So that was wow. the, the big bulk of the drop was related to parking restrictions, private land closures, reservation systems. And it's, it's all happening on the front range peaks, which are the busier ones. It sounds like people didn't, you know, forego Quandary and Ducalibar and spill over into Albert and Shivano. They just did less 14ers. Enjoy. That's interesting. Or what are they doing? They're not doing centennials or mountain biking, something different. That's hmm. yeah, is that the way of the world now? Other, other things started opening back up. So, you know, maybe people went back to just hanging out at the brewery or something. So if you did like a if you did like a trend line, I guess, from 2017-2018 and compare that to 2021, is it still a dip? Um, I was looking at them the other day. So 2021, we estimated 303,000. And then in 2018, I think we were at 311,000. Also, it, hmm. 2017, I think we were at 353. So it was kind of climbing up. And then, you know, 2019, we had a big dip. 2020 went up and then 2021 has gone back down, but it's further down than we probably would have expected. What was the 2020 number? Was it the highest point we've ever had in your counting data? Yeah, it was 2020, four, sorry. 415,000 hiker use days. So it was a like a 20% increase over 2018, which was kind of more of a normal year. But from that low, low hiker use with heavy snow in 2019, it was a 40% increase. Interesting. And do you think that's the new way of the world? You know, like now that like Conundrum Hot Springs is permitted and more of the maroon bells is getting permitted and it's it's likely going to happen uh with some of these busier 14ers um but, but i mean we also have like actual data that shows it's really just a handful of weekends in like july and august where these peaks and and it's a handful of peaks they kind of have this you know zoo or like amusement park sort of feel to them where you've got 500 800 a thousand people up there that's only happening on quandary beer stat maybe grays and tories in mid-july to early august and you can go out on on those same peaks on a monday or a tuesday in june september october and like maybe you see two or three other people out there so 
Did you have like a list of like, if we had more money, if we had more resources, if we have more volunteers, we'd get to more than three trail projects a year. Or like you mentioned the, the dozen or so projects that the, the other crews will do this year. Like, is there a list of what we could do if we had more resources? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, everything's driven by the lands that we work on are managed by the forest service. So we have, we have five-year plans. We know what we've probably got for big, uh, like large scale projects coming up in the next five or six years here with potentially big projects on Castle Peak, Snowmass, Princeton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a handful of, of large projects that are planned. We, we know the amount of money that needs to go into a lot of these trails. Cause we've done those analysis of like, where's the work that we need to do? What do we need to do on these trails? How much do we estimate? How much time is it going to take? How much money is it going to take? So we have kind of all this information. And the thing that we're running into now is that potentially, even if we had more money, we're struggling to hire experienced crew members to fill the positions. So last year in 2022, we were supposed to be on Black Cloud and it's it's only another two people on that project and then partnering with a, a youth corps. We couldn't get enough applicants that were qualified to, to do the actual trail work to justify running that project. So we had to postpone it until this year. So we, you know, we're there, there's probably a lot of people that are, you know, doing professional trail building jobs. We're kind of in the upper echelon of how difficult it is to do some of these jobs. You have to be pretty experienced to be waking up every day, hiking a 14 or moving, you know, 500 pound rocks. Um, you know, it, it's a difficult job. We don't necessarily have the most enticing time period that we work in. We're like a lot of people want a seasonal trail crew position, but ours is so super small. We're working, you know, 13, 14,000 feet. So we can only work when it's snow free. So when we are offering people jobs, it's you're coming in in May and you're gone by September, by the end of September. Whereas you could go work a park service job and you might get to work nine months or 10 months out of the year and still have that little bit of time off. You might be able to go work a trail crew job in Arizona or New Mexico, and you get a way longer field season, or even someone that works in Colorado, but isn't working at 14,000 feet, you know, they might have a longer. Earlier. So people leave, you know, we're competing against the national park service. We're competing against the U S forest service. You know, all of those people are hiring at the same time we are they offer longer trail seasons. They can oftentimes offer additional benefits because they are longer duration. So we struggle to find people most of the time to, to be able to do these jobs. Um, it's hard work. So people burn out on it fairly quick. You know, if, if we've got somebody that's really committed to doing this se seasonal trail work, they might stick around three years. Some people maybe have stuck around five years and then, you know, you get to, too old to to do it or priorities change in life and you don't want to necessarily be living in the woods, waking up at 3 a.m., busting your ass every day. Um, so it's, yeah, there's kind of a lot of turnover. That's interesting. I never thought about the short weather window that makes it hard to find employees. You know, I, we're always, as our organization, we're always going to advocate for keeping these places open and having access and not restricting them. You know, we don't really want to have reservation systems and parking shuttles and 
that sort of thing or, or permits even. Um, we just, we can also look at our data that we have with the trail inventories and look at a peak like quandary and say, hey, if we have a well-built trail that's maintained annually, like it can handle this sort of traffic. We we analyzed Quandary in 2011 and it ranked on our report card as like a C minus. We invested somewhere like $250,000 in that trail. Um, we had a crew on Quandary for three years. We did you know several thousand volunteer days there over those same three years. We brought that trail condition from a C minus up to an A. And then that was at the same time that we had 30, 35, 40,000 people hiking that peak. So from what our data shows is like, if we have a trail that's built of durable materials like rocks and logs, it's well delineated so that people are actually staying on it and not hiking off trail. It can handle the, the traffic that it's seeing, so. Sweet, thanks for taking an hour for your time and chatting with me on a Tuesday night. For sure, happy to do it, man.